Let's read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a path, a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is a whole new level of survival, and we're trying to film it. I commend anyone who can survive in this area. There's a bear right across. I feel like I'm starving. I didn't come here to get killed. It's going to be hell. Hey, Ben. What was that? How long could you survive alone in the wilderness? Last year, I got completely hooked by this series, Alone, on SBS. The idea is that 10 contestants get dropped in the wilderness in separate locations with about 10 items of survival gear. They've got some camera gear to film themselves, and that's it. All they need to do is survive alone. And the person who survives the longest wins, wins the prize. A highlight for me was uh, one contestant, Alan, cooking up and eating a slug. <laughs> that looked tasty. Other guys get uh, freaked out by cougars and bears. But the most interesting thing is seeing how the guys cope with being alone. Will they thrive by themselves and go on this amazing and inspiring journey of self-discovery? Or will they go a bit nuts? And we get to watch it all as they record themselves on camera. And this show is the perfect experiment for our world today. Uh, with our world today, when our, the individual is just so important. We can relate to those themes of uh, who am I when I'm alone? Who is the real me deep down, separate from everything else? Um, and, and, and what would that look like to be the real me? It's the perfect theme for us today. Well, we're in a series here at church called Being Human. And today we look at what it means to be an individual human. Who am I? As an individual person, who is the real me? And I'm going to make a big promise today. By the end of this talk, you will know the real you. 
You don't have to go after the wilderness. You don't have to be dropped among bears and cougars. By the end of church today, you're going to know the real you. Now, it's a big promise. Let's see how we go. First up, we're going to think about our culture for a moment. Now, in the past, this question of who am I as an individual, I don't think was so much a thing. People were okay with thinking of themselves as a member of a family or uh, parishioners of a church denomination or a guild member of a trade or subjects of his majesty, the king. People thought in terms of community or the tribe, the family, the tradition, the empire. But now our Western culture is highly individualistic. When we think about being human, we mainly think about being an individual. Who is the real me? Everything we have now is our own personal thing. We've got our own social media profile, our own Twitter handle, our own Netflix login. We've got our own ensuite in all our rooms and bathrooms. We've got our, our own personalized everything. Did you, did you know when email first came out, people used to share the address, kind of like a street address. My email would have been Richard and Jen Sweatman at onetel.com or something like that. Um, our older congregation members probably still have those uh, kind of emails. But now everyone has their own individual email. Everything's individual at every level. Now, this focus on the individual in our culture, it's not just static. It's, it's not just kind of a this is how it is thing. There's actually a story around it that shapes our world. Let me explain. Individualism, it's kind of a story that parallels the Christian salvation story. It's a story with the same steps of creation, fall, redemption, and heaven. A pastor in Australia called Rory Shiner pointed this out in a talk I heard this year. Let me explain it and just see if you can recognize these elements in the story. So it goes like this. For all of us, life started out good. We're born good and life is good. And as kids, we can just be ourselves and be kids. Be, we can be who we are. Nobody's putting any expectations on us. This is good. And this is like the creation pre-fall state. Now, it could be a short time or even a very short time. But regardless, there is a good start. That's the creation story. And then things start to go wrong. There's a fall. There's a fall from the good beginning. And the fall is the constricting and negative effects of society and family. There are outside influences that restrict what I can do and who I can be. They're making me conform to some stereotype or fit some mold. They're enslaving me to be a person that other people want me to be or do something that they want me to do. And this is the fall. It's kind of like a, it's a slavery to external limitations. And then there is the redemption story. So despite these restrictions, the individual breaks free from these enslaving influences. There is salvation. And how does that happen? Well, it's kind of two phases. There's phase one of a self-discovery phase and then a self-expression phase. Now, self-discovery, that's the hard work of obtaining knowledge. This is what the individual has to do. Find my true self, work out my passions, listen to my heart. This is the stuff we've got to do for self-discovery. And when we find our true self and I find our true passion, that's kind of an achievement unlocked and we reach the first level of salvation, this knowledge thing. Then the next step in the salvation story is self-expression. It's about putting that knowledge into practice. It involves breaking free from the expectations of society and the constrictions of family and following the next set of commands. This is be true to yourself, follow your passions, be free, live an amazing life, 
ultimately express who you are. And that's the pathway for salvation, self-expression there. And I'll point out here that it's very much a works-based salvation. It's all about works. Because who's doing the saving here? It's you. You need to do the hard work of obeying all these commands. You've got to do the hard work of self-discovery and the hard work of self-expression. And only if you're strong enough can you unlock that achievement and obtain salvation. And then once you've achieved this salvation, you can reach a kind of heavenly state where you are living the dream as an individual. You go on being you, living life to the full, moving from one success to another. You're following your passions. You're expressing your passions. Now, you might have a, a romantic sort of partner to join you in this heavenly state, but they're certainly not going to restrict who you are. And the world around you just celebrates the state you have achieved. And on the story goes. Now, that could pretty much describe every Disney or Pixar movie you have ever seen. John and Al shared some of their uh, video, their movie experiences. But uh, as another example, a parent of older kids, let me share this clip of the movie Enola Holmes. Now, it comes right at the end of the movie. Enola has been through the individual salvation story, oh, pretty much step for step. And now Enola speaks to the camera here as someone who has achieved salvation and done the work and reached the individualist heaven. Let's have a listen to what she has to say. So, how to conclude. My name is Enola, which backwards spells alone. To be a home, you must find your own path. My brothers have, my mother has, and I must too. But I now see that being alone doesn't mean I have to be lonely. Mother never wanted that. She wanted me to find my freedom, my future, my purpose. I am a detective. I am a decipherer. And I am a finder of lost souls. My life is my own. And the future is up to us. All right, yeah, did you catch that? There, Enola has shaken off the constrictions of society and achieved self-discovery and achieved self-expression as an individual. And the future is now up to her. She, in this scene, she's like a prophet proclaiming the salvation story to us lost souls in the audience. Uh, will we aim for a salvation like hers? Will we do the hard work of self-discovery and self-expression? It's all up to us at this point. And so this gospel of individualistic salvation is what we get told over and over again. But our world is actually also coming to terms with the problems of this gospel. Because it's actually really hard to find your passion. For many people, it's crushing. What if you don't have a passion? What if the passion you've got is not very strong and you're not sure if that's the real one or just a mirage? Like, how do you know? I read an article by a mother whose daughter broke down in tears one day. She was going through a tough time and, and she said, look, because of all, on top of all of her other problems, she just sobbed and said, and I still haven't found my passion. 
and she was seven years old. <laughs> My wife, who's in general practice, frequently comes across young adults with just no idea who they are or what their passion is. They're completely lost, completely uncertain as to who their true self is. There's no sense of uh, anything. And so the salvation project just grinds to a halt. And it's not just self-discovery. The necessity of continuous self-expression is just as burdensome. This is a works-based salvation. And works-based salvation is always oppressive. We get caught up in comparisons and pride and despair, especially when we haven't obtained what other people have. And then on top of this, there's this problem that this individualistic heaven is not actually much of a heaven at all. It's very lonely. Our society is wrestling with that. We become lonely as we cast off outside influences. And if heaven means a space where no one impinges on my self-expression, that's going to be very lonely as well. The heaven of individualism is really a modern hell of loneliness. So that's our culture, the gospel of uh, self-discovery and self-expression that's being proclaimed. Maybe that's part of our story as well, and we're wrestling with those things. But where do we go from here? If this false gospel is not the way, then what is the true answer? How do we find the real me? How do I live as an individual? Well, on this, we've got to come to the Word of God to help us. We've got to come to the Bible. We've got to be like hungry people, uh, desperate to hear what God has to say. What does the Bible have to say about being an individual and finding our identity? Let's look there now. Well, we've seen the, uh, the secular salvation story. Let's build up a picture of who we are as individuals by looking at the real salvation story from the Bible. Now, the Bible starts not with us, but with God. God's the one who created the first human. And we've seen in this series, humanity was created in the image of God. Genesis 1:27. so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Right, this is important for two reasons. Like, firstly, we approach this identity, this question of identity, not by creating our own identity, but by receiving our identity from our Creator. This is how God made me. It might be my dream to be a six foot eight starting point guard for an NBA team, but no, this is how God has made me an average height white guy with poor eyesight and a, a dislike of training. No, that's what I've received. And this really is a live issue for us with things like Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook. Meta invites us to create ourselves as whatever we want to be. Our avatar, which is what we're going to present at work and play, that's, we're going to wear these goggles that will capture all our facial expressions and we've got gloves that capture our gestures. This avatar can be anything. It can be big or small, black or white, male or female, or even a robot or an animal. In Meta, we create ourselves. But the reality is that we are created by God, not ourselves. And so our search for the real me starts with who am I as the created me? And secondly, from Genesis, we see that right from the beginning, uh, perfection wasn't being purely alone. God created humanity in relationship, in relationship with him and with relationship with each other, male and female. This is expanded in Genesis 2, where we read it was not good for the individual man to be alone. God made the female, and these two people were in relationship and in a position to live out who God had made them to be in his image. So goodness is person in relationship right from the beginning there. So that's the creation story, God's good creation, people in relationships with each other and relationship with him in whose image we are made. And in our story then, things go wrong, the fall happens, things go wrong, not because the 
first couple was repressed by family or institutions or society, it goes wrong because of sin. This is in Genesis 3. The man and the woman take the fruit of the tree they were forbidden to eat from because they want to be like God. They don't want to be his servants. They want to be their own masters. Genesis 3 verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See here, the fall comes from our own hearts, our own desires, our own sin. And the rest of the Old Testament shows the outworking of sin and the relationship breakdown that happens. Because, therefore, you know, sin is in us. That's one of the reasons why breaking free from marriages or, or family or jobs or the country we live in can never really set us free. The slavery is in our lives, is inside us. It's not outside of us. The real me, sadly, is a slave to sin. But from this point on, the Bible is not about a series of tasks or achievements that we need to perform to save ourselves. We're not told to drag ourselves out of sin into salvation. The Bible is leading up to someone who will save us. That person is another individual, a saviour. And this brings us to the Psalms. In the Psalms, or in many Psalms, we learn about the individual. We hear the voice of the individual, and especially the individual who will be our saviour. Ancient literature in other cultures, it's nearly always about great events or great kings and their conquests. There's epic poems and myths. But the Psalms are unique. They take us into the inner life of individuals with all the frailties and struggles of being an individual. We saw this when we read Psalm 27. Here's the voice of an individual. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This, this, this psalm validates and describes the individual. But these psalms, and psalms, they're not just about any individual. They are the psalms of David, the Messiah. This person is the hope of Israel. And in God's timing, this perfect individual is born, Jesus of Nazareth. Let's spend some time thinking about Jesus. Firstly, Jesus, the Son of God, became truly human. He really is genuinely human like us. Hebrews 2 says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus is a genuine individual. He's like us in every way. We see this in Hebrews. It's clear from the Gospels. Jesus wasn't an extension of God the Father, uh, like an extra limb coming out. Uh, he's, he's not a version of God the Father. He was a proper person. But Jesus, while being an individual, is in relationship with the Father from eternity. We'll read from John 14 here. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus, as the divine Son of God, has been in perfect relationship with God the Father from eternity. 
a father-son relationship of love and completeness in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who is a perfect person as well. Now, this is so important on getting a handle on individualism, because, uh, because at the center of eternity, what is unmade and just is, is the one God in three persons in perfect relationship. Relationship and love is at the foundation of everything. And when we meet Jesus, we get a glimpse into this reality. It's like the window is opened into the deepest mysteries. It's like seeing the code behind the program. Eternal relationship and personhood. That's what Jesus reveals to us. But thirdly, as we speak about Jesus, amazingly, Jesus himself experienced being alone as an individual. Isaiah 53 speaks about Jesus in advance. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was rejected, alone. And we see this in his ministry and in the lead up to his death. And this is so helpful for us in our loneliness. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone. But fourthly, Jesus' aloneness and suffering was actually for us. At the cross, he suffered so that we might be saved from sin and death and hell. We might be saved, not, but not just we generally as, uh, as a crowd, but you and me as individuals. Let's look at this from Galatians. Let's look here. We'll see the personal love of Jesus for individuals. The Apostle Paul writes, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just notice those last words. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved who? Like his people in a general sense? The crowd? No. The word is me. And more than that, gave himself for me. Now, if you have ever felt unloved, this is huge. This is a beautiful and overwhelming truth. Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. What a way to establish identity. What a salvation not saved by our own efforts of self-discovery or self-expression, but saved by a saviour who actually loves us. If you are not yet a Christian, please come to Jesus. Receive from him his love. Give up living for yourself and live for him who gave himself for you. So coming back to this question of who are we? Who is the real me? Well, we can see we're part of a big story. We are loved and saved by Christ and now in relationship with him. The shorthand for this is that we are in Christ. So who are we? Well, we are an individual in Christ. But there is more to say as we build up the full picture, because when God saves us, he doesn't leave us alone. We're not like the Martian. Uh, you remember that movie? In this movie, Matt Damon is by himself on Mars, completely alone on a planet. This is the ultimate in self-isolation. Now, is that what becoming a Christian is like? We're a lone survivor? Well, no. When God saves us, he saves us into a new community, the church. Just listen to how the letter of 1 Peter explains it. Just listen for the way the individual is saved into a group. 
As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here we see individual salvation, we're living stones, but also being part of a community, a spiritual house or a spiritual temple founded on Christ and made up of individual believers together. Just imagine a building, like an ancient temple. From a distance, it's just one thing. But up close, it's made up of individual stones placed carefully together. That's our story. As individuals saved in Christ, now incorporated into a spiritual organization. And a building's not the only image of the church in the Bible. There's the body, like from Romans 12, we're all members of one body. Or there's a flock, we're like sheep in a flock. Or we're like sons and daughters in a family. They're all multiple images overlapping and, and building up a picture of individuals in community in Christ. So at this point, the Bible story sounds like the opposite of the salvation story of our world. In that story, we save ourselves by escaping from family and organizations and institutions and structures. But here, we are saved into an organization, into a group, into a community. So our, now, our new identity, if we're to build it up, is an individual in Christ in the church. Now, what are some applications of that idea? Well, the Bible is full of them. I'll just draw out a couple. Um, the church will be a place of genuine diversity. Our world likes to pretend that it owns diversity. But where else is more diverse than a church? Here we have people of different ages, ethnic backgrounds and educations, um, we have people of all kinds of personalities and interests because the individual is validated. We can actually express ourselves as to how God has made us. There are cool people here. There are nerds. There are geeks, whatever it might be. The church owns diversity. And this is great. We should embrace this. And as we do that, there's the responsibility on us to accept others who are different to ourselves. Like we might enjoy chatting with our nerdy gaming friends or our nerdy gardening friends, but we will make time for and show love to all people at church, even if we have nothing in common except Jesus. So church will be a place of genuine diversity. And I would love for all us to be coming back to church with great enthusiasm. Here at the Hub, we'd love to sell out each week on the Monday or Tuesday, and we want our church on December the 5th to be packed. Everyone keen to come back and be part of our church community. So genuine diversity, but also we can say very clearly that God has a place for me in his church because it is a real community. There is a place for me here. One of the tragedies of our world is the devaluing of community. Our world talks about it, but we don't see it. Let me give you an example. In previous decades, when people bought a coffee or a pastry or went to a gym, uh, we were called customers. Do you remember that word? I don't, you never hear it anymore. We were called customers, but now we are that store's community. Apparently, I'm part of a cafe's community or a fruit shop's community. During lockdown, there was a signs coming out saying we message for our community. I got a letter from the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper telling that I, me that I'm part of their community. But this is quite a strange community. Maybe one or two people know my name, but nobody comes and talks to me and asks me how I'm going. Nobody's had me around for a meal. If I needed help moving a sofa, I wouldn't know who from the Sydney Morning Herald community to call up. I don't have their phone number. If this is community, it's pretty lonely. But in church, there is a place for you here. People will get to know you. They will spend time with you. We do visit each other's homes and help each other out. 
Now, maybe not as much as you'd like, and I'm sure we could all do more, but church is actually really good. I remember telling someone once about how some people at church dropped off a meal for us during a difficult time. And, and that person who wasn't, wasn't a Christian, didn't go to church, they were, they were so amazed. I had to explain it like two or three times. I said, no, I didn't pay for it. <laughs> I didn't need to pay. I didn't have to make one in exchange. It wasn't a formal swap deal. They, they, they just gave me a meal. And the concept was completely foreign to this person. It's just so good. There is a place for you here. So to sum up, as we build this picture, we are individuals in Christ in the church. And then finally, we are in the world. We are still connected to the people around us. We read from 1 Peter before. Let's read a few more verses from that letter. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Did you see there? Among the pagans. That means among the people around us. Uh, Youthies, this means we want the world to say there's something sus about these Christians among us. God's will for us is not to head off into the hills to form a cult. We're not supposed to completely detach ourselves from the world. We're supposed to remain in the world, loving the world, especially by proclaiming the gospel to our lost and needy city. So we keep out living our lives as Christians. In our families, whether they're Christian or not Christian, uh, we go to work, we participate in local life. Um, I coach my kids' soccer team in the winter. Uh, last week I did the scoring for, the, for cricket. You know, we're still part of the world. And we try to live godly lives in these contexts so, so that people in the long term might glorify God. These things, they're not constricting my identity as an individual. I'm not a slave because I have to go to the cricket on Saturday. I'm already perfectly free in Christ. This is where we live out who we are. So who am I? Well, I am an individual in Christ, in the church, in the world. And what is my hope? Well, it's not escape to an individualist heaven. My hope now is that I can live the rest of my life in a way that honors God. And after death or Jesus' return, I'm looking forward to an eternity with Christ and his people. I'm not looking forward to being by myself, some kind of mystical, endless COVID lockdown. That would be hell. I'm looking forward to seeing people, to seeing an old school friend of mine named Greg, who died in a car crash 25 years ago. He was a great Christian encouragement to me, and I look forward to seeing him. I look forward to seeing John Chapman, the evangelist, who was a great encouragement to me during college. I look forward to seeing many other brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm looking forward to meeting people I've never met from every tribe and nation and hearing their story of God's goodness in their lives. The Christian hope is about being with people. So what do we do with all this? Well, I think we need to, first of all, boldly reject the world's salvation story of a gospel of works. We are not engaged in a self-saving project of self-discovery and self-expression. God has set us free from that slavery. Why would we go back there again? So the next time someone asks you what your passion is, tell them that your only passion is that the name of Jesus might be glorified, whether by your life or by your death. That's your passion. But we can go deeper and wider here. We can go deeper. And this is where we kind of embrace the gospel identity uh, of ourselves as individuals. We can come to terms with ourselves, who God has made us to be uh, and who we are in our context. 
And for this, like if, if you're an introvert, I'd encourage you to reflect on this alone this week. Take your Bible, go to your man cave or your tent in the bush, uh, go easy on the slugs and so on. But you know, reflect on what that means. Do some journaling. Um, I did that this week. I filled up four pages of who I am as an individual, who I am in Christ. What does that mean to me? Who I am in the church? What does that mean in the world? Um, I went deeper into that. If you're an extrovert, well, you gather some people around. Um, give them a sausage and a Coke or a croissant and a pot of tea and talk it through. Talk it through what it means to be who you are in these contexts. As, as an extrovert, you'll only know what you think once you've heard yourself explain it. Um, have your Bible open, of course, during all this. Just who you are. And then help someone else with those same questions. So we can go deeper, but we can also go wider. We can live it out by embracing our relationships with God, our embracing, uh, embracing our relationship with our church family, with the world beyond us. Not as things that are repressive to who we are, but as the context for joy and flourishing as people in relationships. We can reject the false path of individualism because we've got something much better. We don't save ourselves. Jesus has saved us because he loves us. Let's finish with those words from Galatians again. From Galatians, for through the law, I died to the Lord that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Almighty God, you made us in your image with all your wisdom and power. Forgive us for our sin, particularly our desire to live independently from you. Forgive us for the way we try to save ourselves. Thank you that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Help us to be content in who we are as individuals, in Christ, in the church, and in the world. Please deepen our personal relationship with Christ. May we be a blessing to our church and to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.